0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. This is week five of um, the Galatians series. We've been doing a chapter every week over the last month. And um, there's actually one more to go, which is Galatians 6 next week, which Mark will be finishing us off. So today we're in Galatians 5. Um, as a church, we 100% believe in the transformative power of of the gospel. We wouldn't be here on a Sunday if we didn't believe that. In fact, it's the reason that we do everything that we do. It's the reason we turn up here at Eight thirty to nine o'clock on a Sunday, and set out these chairs and do the refreshments, and the band comes and gets ready, and we we put so much effort into Sundays. It's because we believe in the power of the gospel. It's the reason that midweek we get together and have barbecues or do midweek groups or work through the Freedom in Christ course. It's the reason that we know when we go into our jobs, into where we live, into our neighbourhoods, and we start to share with people the good news of the gospel that there's actually power in that that we do. It's the reason that we do everything and not only do we believe that it's a personal power to change our own lives which could be called saving grace we believe that the gospel is even more powerful than just to save individuals it has the power to save a city a nation and the world that's called common grace So when you, I wonder, when you go into your job this week, when you go into what you do normally, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, do you go in knowing that the power of the gospel is with you as you walk into that setting? We should be the very best citizens of this city in wherever we find ourselves. If the gospel really has power and we've changed, then wherever we are, we should be a blessing to the people that are around us. So as Redeemer, we should be getting a reputation for being um, in this community. And I believe we're beginning to get a taste of that, but we could do so much more. And today we get a little glimpse of what Paul's strategy is for the gospel going around the world through his writings to Galatians. And it's exactly the same as our belief of how powerful the gospel is. So you can kind of understand that when someone comes along and tries to rob the power that's in the gospel. Paul gets annoyed. He gets more than annoyed. I mean, it's really lucky that the the teachers that he refers to throughout Galatians, these false teachers, aren't present whilst Paul is telling them off. They get off slightly lightly, they get a letter, but his words are brutal. And we'll see some of that today as we look at um, chapter 5. So without the power of the gospel, all of this is for nothing. That's why We've spent so much time going through the book of Galatians because we want to understand this power more deeply. We want to be changed more um, within us and we want to see that power go to the people that we know. So a little bit of a recap. Why is Paul so angry with these false teachers? Well, Paul planted this church and he sat down with them and he didn't have too long with them. But while he was there, he explained the gospel to them, which is essentially this. Believe in Jesus, get saved, and live a good life. These false teachers came along and said, well, Paul, actually you didn't get that quite right. He got the the elements, but he got the order wrong. So yes, believe in Jesus, but then you need to live a good life so you can be saved. So what they did, they flipped the order. And that really angered Paul, because by flipping the order, you strip the gospel of its power, and it becomes works. And it becomes on our own merit rather than what on Jesus has done. So we pick up the story in chapter 5. The verses will come on long on the screen. We're going to read the, the whole chapter, but we'll drill down into some specific verses. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. There's a pleasant thought from a bank holiday in August. Um, For you who were called to freedom, brothers, not only not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another the whole law is fu- fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Well, there's a lot in there that we could talk about today, but I wanted to pick up the big theme that's in this chapter. Not only is it in this chapter, it runs through the whole book of Galatians, it runs through the whole Bible, and that's the theme of freedom. Now, Rich last week preached on adoption, set us up really nicely You'll see that towards the end of chapter 4, it starts talking about slavery. And then you get to Paul's unpacking of what freedom looks like. And as a church, we should get this. We've spent three months working through it on a Wednesday called the Freedom in Christ course. So none of this should be new. But I do wonder how the gospel has gone from the head to the heart. Because we can study these things and we can understand the concepts but if it doesn't fall from the head to the heart, then we're not truly changed. And, they, and nothing actually happens. The power hasn't been unleashed. So when I look at today's, how does the power be unleashed in our lives? Um, freedom, I love this film, Braveheart, Mel Gibson. Um, you'll see that this, this theme of freedom uh, runs right through Hollywood. They love it. Why do they love it? It's because it's actually of God. Freedom is one of the things that, that God wants to bring us. So that is within us. He's made us that way. So when we see films like this or we see, read books which unpack a tale of freedom, it resonates with us. There's something within us which connects with this. Now, it might not be um, a yes vote for uh, Scottish independence. That's not what this is about. Um, but what that is is a, is a, is a rallying call for uh, throwing off the oppression which... Um, the, the, uh, the people that Mel Gibson represents there. Um, and, and we should resonate with that. That's a, a really common theme. However, on the surface, Christianity can look like we don't have much to offer on this subject. It can look like a really heavy list of do's and don'ts, things that we should obey, like a, um, heavenly sanctions which keep us locked up. It was the, the French philosopher uh, Diderot during the Enlightenment um, phase in France who said this. There will, there will never be freedom until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. It's very clear what he thinks religion has to say on the topic of freedom. Um, and what royalty has to say on the topic of freedom. Um, and you know what? It's absolutely correct if you define freedom in the way that it's usually defined. And what I want to look at today is give you a different model for how we define freedom. You see, secular world defines freedom as independence. Now that could be um, political independence, it could be a personal independence, being able to do what I want, however I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. That's how society defines freedom. I'm free from whatever, any impediment, any hindrance, anything that might obstruct me to do what I want. The absence of obstruction. Well, I would suggest there's two major problems with that definition of freedom. First of all, that definition of freedom means that an all-powerful God can't exist. So this is, a, this is a reason that we would understand as the church. You see, if freedom means I can do whatever I want, however I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, then you can't have an all-powerful God who has some sort of reign, rule and reign over all things. Those things don't go together. Either you're under the king or you're not under the king. That's the first thing i 've got a problem with it. The second one is a reason that the world might have uh, might more understand, and that is that um, if freedom is defined as no obstruction and we 're able to do whatever our hearts tell us to do, then we end up getting in a bit of a mess that 's because we 're complicated, and our hearts don't sing with just one message they 're all over the place should. Should I be married? Should I be single? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Where should I live? What should I do? The heart can be doing conflicting things all at the same time. And that's just me on my own. When you start adding other people into that mix and their heart's desires, you're very quickly going to get onto a place where, well, this is freedom for me, but it's now going to impact your version of freedom. And that's where we get into a problem. When we haven't got some sort of plumb line which defines right or wrong, defines the, um, the overarching rules of the game, so to speak, then we can't have true freedom because one freedom will always impinge another person's freedom. This uh, photo here is from the Arab uprising. You've got conflicting freedoms there. Whose freedom is it? Is it the freedom of the protester or the freedom of the government to do what they want. Or both would say, I'm free to to do what I want, but they conflict. And that's the problem with defining freedom as completely independent. What I want to do whenever I want to do it. That's a poor definition of freedom. That said, the Bible is absolutely dripping with um, freedom references. It's not that we don't have freedom. Freedom does exist. It's a concept. It's right through the Bible. We look at how Jesus announces his ministry in Luke four sixteen to 21. Um, I'll just read it. He went into Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it is written, written The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is saying, I am all about freedom. That's who I am. That's what I've come to do. So we better understand what this concept is. If it's not empowering us to do what we want, when we want to do it, it must mean something else. John 8.36, Jesus says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the whole letter of Galatians is full of this language of freedom. It's a concept that goes right through the Bible. If you look at how um, God wanted to teach the people of God this concept, he took them into slavery so that he had an opportunity to redeem them. That's why we're called Redeemer. It's because we understand God as that Redeemer. And that story was told to their children, to their children's children, to the children's children's children, and we're still telling it today. And that's how we understand God as our Redeemer. So... What is real freedom? Well, to understand it a little better, I think we need to start with a more simple example. Let me introduce you to my friend Willie. There we are. You should be familiar with this film back in the 80s, anyone who's a child in the 80s. Uh, let me summarise the story if you're not familiar. An orca whale called Willie is captured and um, is put in a, uh, like a, a show. There's a young boy called Jesse who befriends um, Willie and is determined to help Willie escape to freedom. Why am I using this example? Well, freedom, I would suggest, is more related to your purpose and your calling than it is to doing your own thing. Why, Why is this such a great example? Because an orca whale, was created for something. And it was not to be in a show. It was to be in the wild ocean roaming free. That's where Willie's heart would be beating the fastest. That's where he would come alive. That's quite easy to define for an orca whale because it's got a very clear purpose. But when we come to us, it starts to get a little bit more complicated because we're all made differently and we all have different callings and purpose. But I would like to suggest that probably the main purpose, the reason we were created was for love, was to have love with God and to be in that relationship. That's where our heart beats fastest. It's not out in the wild ocean like Willie. It's being in a loving relationship with God. So maybe freedom's got something to do with that. Well, we need to look at this relationship between freedom and love. We need love. That's where we thrive. That's where we become alive. It's our definition of freedom must then work in the context of love. What do I mean by that? Well, the secular definition of freedom actually has a problem when it comes to love. What do I mean by that? Well... When I first started dating Shelley, I quickly realized that being in love meant there were things that I needed to give up and sacrifice. No longer could I do what I wanted, when I wanted to do it, however I wanted to do it. I was now in a relationship where a conversation would happen. As we um, look forward to starting a family and I start to think about what being a father would be like, I'm I'm getting the understanding that actually there's more that I'm going to have to give up and sacrifice. And that's an even deeper relationship than I've known so far. In other words, freedom can't mean I do what I want when I want it. Because freedom can't exist within the context of love. Because love is sacrifice. Therefore, freedom must mean something which is in the context of love. Love. Um, if it's just defined as independence, then we start getting in a mess. Because to be free means to be out of love. And I'm, I'm just not cool with that. And I don't think you would be either. So, the Bible says that we are built and designed for a loving relationship with Jesus. He is the one who will not enslave us when we give our hearts to him. Everything else that we could give our hearts to will ultimately enslave us. But giving our hearts to Jesus leads to freedom. So freedom is a new heart. And that's where the power of the gospel comes in. Because if it's, if it's just a morality gospel, it changes us on the outside, then we don't have the capacity to really be free. It has to be an operation a heart of stone is taken out and a new heart goes in. Do you remember that game from the 80s? It was great fun, wasn't it? The nose lit up if you hit the, uh, the edges. Um, so we need, we need this operation on us. That's where the power comes from. It's the thing that all the heads of state, all the governments, all the people that design how society works are after, but they don't know it. See, they want to create systems where freedom thrives, where there's peace, where there's love, where there's all those virtues that we want in society. But they don't go for a new heart. They start from the outside and introduce rules and regulations. It doesn't work that way round. What we know is it needs to start with our own hearts deep within us, not an external set of rules and regulations. So therefore, how does someone who's inherently bad has evil within us, have their heart changed to become good? How on earth do you deal with the human heart, changing the human heart so that there's a desire to sacrifice, be generous, and to love one another? Well, Paul here is saying that the reason that we do good things is very important. The reason is everything. Gospel transformation is different to just moral transformation. The gospel changes you from the inside out. Let me give you an example. So if I had a a rod of iron and I bent it and made it look like um, maybe how some of us feel. I know I feel like a, a bent rod from time to time. And all I was to do was to bend it back so from the outside it looked straight again. In reality, that rod is as weak as it could be bent again and break But if I take that rod, I put it in the furnace and I heat it. And the energy melts the the iron. And that's then tempered and put back strong. It's stronger than it was before. That's the kind of transformative power that's in the gospel. It's not just changing the outside, bending you back straight. It's heating you up. So fundamentally on the inside, your very nature has changed. So... The gospel puts your heart in the fire, makes you new, makes you stronger. And when you've shaped in that experience, you are stronger than ever before. Um, C.S. Lewis has a a great saying, which is, don't be nice, be new. And he wrote a whole uh, uh, book about it. In fact, there's a chapter in Mere Christianity on this on this topic. I'll just read it to you. Niceness, wholesomeness, integrated personality is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where we all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose That even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. And might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature, a whole new being altogether. When the gospel comes into your life it changes you it makes you into a bold person an honest person a courageous person makes you an unselfish person it makes you a godly person you are completely accepted in god's sight and nothing can separate you from his love but how does that create a godly life how does that create a transformed life How is it possible if you tell someone that God will love you no matter what you do, how can that possibly turn them into someone who wants to live a life for God? Wouldn't the gospel, if anything, lead us to think, hey, I can live any way I want to, now I'm accepted by God. Have you ever thought that? I know that's a question that I've been wrestling with this week. Those of you who've been to university will be um, familiar that the first year of university is kind of written off. All you've got to do is pass the first year of university. Well, it was for me. Maybe maybe others went to better universities. But I know it's quite common that all you need to do is reach a a mark of 40% in your first year, and then that's written off, and years two and three actually go towards the class that you uh, are awarded. What incentive, therefore, is there for people to work hard during their first year. Exactly. And don't you see that? Don't you see that as people settle in? To, they've worked really hard at, um, at their A-levels. They go off to university. They get their first taste of freedom. And you know what? The grades just, just dip a little bit in that first year. There's something about the lack of incentive to do well when you're covered that can prevent us from working hard. And that's kind of the question I'm asking, is if we know God covers all our sins, what incentive, therefore, is there to live in such a godly way? Well, when acceptance is so total, it makes your performance invisible, how is it that that's an incentive? How is it that that's an incentive for sacrifice? Well, there's a common approach to answering this question which I suggest is actually quite misguided. And that's we need to balance. So on a Sunday over a year, we might talk about grace, but we also need to talk about the rules. We need to get them in there. Well, that might sound like a a good way to address this. Yes, tell people about grace, but tell them about the rules as well. But I suggest that's missing the power of the gospel again. Why? Well, That's the same situation that's going on right here in Galatia that's got Paul so angry. It's not an issue of balance. It's an issue of relationship. The other teachers who Paul is addressing fundamentally do not get the relationship between grace and good works. The reason for our obedience is everything. If you obey God for the reasons you want to obey him to win favor, then you go straight back into slavery. You're no better off. You become a nice person, but you don't become new. But there's another way. Freedom always results in hope and love. Okay. Hope and love become the new engines of um, when you know and when you're absolutely certain Of God's love. See the word hope. Isn't very helpful for us in the English language. See the word hope. Can mean uncertainty. It can mean it might happen. I'm hoping that it will happen. Whereas the word hope. As it's written in the New Testament. Means absolutely 100%. It's going to happen. It has happened. It's certain. So when we talk about hope. We talk about our relationship with God and our standing with God has absolutely been nailed. There is no hope about it. There's no, oh one day I'm hoping that I go to heaven. I'm hoping that um, I'll get some of this righteousness which is mentioned in Galatians 5. No. You're going to get it. It's cast iron guaranteed. Absolutely secure. And when you're trying to save yourself then you can never be sure that when you die you go to heaven. That Are you really going to be good enough for God's standards? When you're saved through faith in Jesus alone, then you have absolute certainty and you see your future as a deposit ready to collect. God does not love me any less because of anything that I've done or I will do. But the things I do are because I love him. Fill your heart with the certainty of who you are in Christ, which is part of what we've been doing in the Freedom in Christ course over three months. All those truths of who you are in Christ going deep within. You fill yourself with the certainty of that. And that will then drive you into a godly lifestyle. because It's because of the relationship with Jesus. Not, not because we're trying to earn anything. Because we're loving him. I'm going to close with a a story. Um, This is for for Anosh and Rekha. Where are you in the room? Anosh is at the back. Anyone who um, was at the barbecue on Wednesday would have seen uh, Anosh walking around with a giant, um, was it a marrow or a, what was it? A courgette. Yeah, look at that. That's not actually Anosh's, but Anosh's was bigger than that, actually. It was ginormous. A giant courgette. This is, this is a, an adapted story that Charles Spurgeon used to tell, but I'm going to use uh, Anosh and Rekha as an example in there. So Anosh and Rekha have grown a giant courgette. It's the best courgette they've ever grown. And they decide to take it to the king. There's a king in this fictional story. And um, as a sign of their adoration and their love for the king. And they walk in and they proudly show off their giant courgette. And lay it in front of the king. And the king is amazed at the love that Amash and Recha are showing him. And he picks this courgette up. And he looks at them. And he says, because of the love that you've shown me, I want to give you another acre of allotment next to your current allotment. So you can be even better gardeners than you currently are. And they walked out of the throne room. In the throne room, there was a nobleman who overheard the conversation. And he thought to himself, well, if a giant courgette can get you an acre of land, what could a horse get you? So he went and got one of his prize horses, came before the king, and presented the, the horse to the king and said, This is a sign of my love and adoration for you, my king. But the king discerned the heart discerned what was beneath the surface. So he said thanks for the horse and walked off. As he was leaving he turned back to the nobleman and explained to him that the reason that the gardeners had got the acre of land was because of their genuine love for the king. Whereas the nobleman had actually given himself the horse. It wasn't a gift. Our great dilemma is how do we be like the gardeners and not be like the nobleman how do we give giant courgettes rather than fancy horses to our king how do we keep our hearts right so that we're loving him rather than trying to earn favor with the king so he would bless us and that's where the gospel can slip from having tremendous power into something which is weak and flabby And that's why Paul's so angry at this situation and wants to sort it out. So only when you see that that is the reason that you can be saved is because God looked at you and was willing to give his son for you, not for anything that we could give him, but simply because he loves you for who you are. That's the message of Galatians. That's the message of the entire Bible That's freedom. That's our biblical understanding of freedom. I'm going to close by uh, praying for us so we can uh, understand that definition better. Lord, we are so grateful for what it cost you to win freedom for us. We never want to take it for granted. We know that we can't earn it. We know there's nothing we can do to try and win your favor. That even if we um, sin and fall short of your standard, you've already decided to forgive us. You've already paid that price, even for things that we do wrong in the future. That is mind-blowing. And that freedom, that is where we thrive. In that love, we want to be like the Orca whale who's, if free, swimming in the ocean, swimming in your love. Experience that full freedom of realizing our calling and our passion. I've been created by you to be in relationship with you. That is amazing. And I pray that we understand it deeper. I pray that we never strip the gospel of its power. We never try and do things out of our own strength. But we understand that 100% completely. In your name, amen.